0: Good morning. Some of you may or may not know, I was adopted in this world three, uh, three days in. I was adopted, and, and uh, I didn't find my birth family till about eight years ago. And they live in New York, outside of Rochester. And the first time that I ever went to go visit them, I drove past Calvary Chapel of Finger Lakes, Uh, where Bill pastors and I didn't know that I just drove by hey look at that there's a Calvary Chapel right there and I was really taken by that and then uh, come to find out that my family many of the people in my family went there for a number of years and uh, so anyway getting a chance to meet him face to face was really pretty pretty cool enjoyed that a lot. Uh, Getting a chance to meet Bruce and Teresa was really uh, quite a special thing as well. So it it never ceases to amaze me, the people that I get to meet here, and then seeing so many of your faces that I get to see every one of the conferences. uh, I I consider myself to be incredibly blessed to uh, partake in in these conferences. They're just amazing to me. So with that, um, as I'm sitting out, and I don't get a chance to do it as much back home, but getting a chance to sit in the congregation and worship Uh, There were two songs, whether you realized it or not, two of the songs uh, were so heavily um, uh, directed towards eschatology, the return of Jesus. And I always say, uh, if if lightning struck me tomorrow, and you know how sometimes you read the stories about people struck by lightning, and when they come out of the ether, they're like these totally different people. Uh, If I was ever to be struck by lightning, I would hope that when I woke, I could actually sing and play uh, some kind of an instrument and write music. I would think that'd be great. And, uh, you know, my view of my eschatology that the Lord is returning would probably show its way in every song because it is the the place where we should at all times be. And I think it will argue against the apathy that I fear happens in the church and what we're going to look at in the text this morning. It is a surefire way of making sure that we never fall into a state of apathy, and that is to be at all times waiting for the Lord's return. So when I read, I'm hearing these songs, I didn't know what they were going to do, but just hearing them, I, I think of 1 first, uh, first John chapter 3, verse 1 tells, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but this we know, that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then it says this, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. Now, if you want to know how to keep from being apathetic in your walk, right here is a great verse to look at. So with that, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, and we will uh, have a look at what Jesus has to say to the churches. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for gathering us in this place yet again and uh, giving us the the wonderful opportunity to come before you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We glorify you for who you are and what you wish to do in our lives and that you at all times are willing to have this work in us completed. And, And it is this wonderful process of growing in our knowledge of you as you do great and mighty things through us. So we give you thanks and praise. We pray that by your word, you would speak to us, to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was listening to, to Bill this morning and he was talking about Jesus and being that one who light issues forth from him and, and that he illuminates all things. And, you know, the other uh, another part in Revelation, it talks about that the gates of the city and all the rest of the things and the gems and all that. And I'm, I always said back home when we get to that part, can you imagine when Jesus, as he radiates, hits the stones and all the rest of it, the light show that will take place in heaven? And I just think I cannot wait to see these things with such excitement. Well, interestingly enough, back home we have uh, we've been going through the the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, and we had completed the seven churches. And the view of the seven churches, depending on who you ask, there are a few different ways that they're looked at. And and uh, one of the the thoughts that they say could have an application is that they're they're meant to be seen, or they could be seen as various eras during history and so they take care of this amount of time and that amount of time and they say that the Laodicean church is that church of the end times and uh, interestingly enough I've heard it said that it's the church that's in a state of apostasy and uh, interestingly enough you don't find him uh, pointing out any doctrinal or theological problems with the church at Laodicea but he does that with other churches and so this is one that is stuck in apathy it's in a place of just being totally complacent and this is kind of the end run of it, but I think it starts in some of the other churches because, if you'll notice, each one of the churches has ended with one very simple statement that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Is plural. So if you're looking at it on a map, you'll notice in uh, what is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey out on the west coast, he addresses the church kind of like from a a south to the north in an arching way, and it runs from the west towards the east. And so as he addresses them, he comes to Laodicea at the end. And by this time, he's talking to a church that is completely asleep, and yet they think that they have everything. And it's a great contrast to Smyrna who had, because of persecution, become so crushed by the, the persecution that they were in a place of poverty, and it wasn't just living paycheck to paycheck, it was crushing poverty. And yet the people at Laodicea, with no such thing going on, were living in a way of being lavish. And interestingly enough, Jesus says nothing of any criticism against Smyrna, and they were doing it right, thus the persecution came. And yet, this church here at Laodicea, there was no hint of persecution, but there was no life in them, spiritually speaking. They had gone into a place of total apathy, but how do you get there? And so we'll read the text in just a moment, but if you've studied through the seven churches, you'll know that Ephesus begins with everything about accolade, save one. And this is the same Ephesus that Paul had gone to, and he taught them the things that he had done, and they were doing quite well except for one thing they had abandoned they had left their first love they didn't lose it as some people would say well they lost their first love now you lose your keys well Joe's not here this morning or we could go back to him but you lose things like that and it's not a deliberate thing but by the time that you read what's said to Ephesus though they did all the things well externally internally things had started to slow down a bit and that love, that fervor for Jesus had, had kind of found its way out, and they had become mechanical. And then you see that as it progresses on, it becomes more of a of a concern by the time that you reach Laodicea, because it had it had just become it had become so dead that there was just nothing but apathy. Now in between those you also get to other churches, and I think of, of Sardis. That they had lived on their reputation, and so you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And so it is also a concerning thing that may, maybe a church has done so well for so long, and yet they're now living on their reputation, but they too would have forgotten where they'd come from. And it ends up, I believe, at Laodicea, because this is where that, that progression goes, you start to become mechanical, though you had a great beginning. And that beginning becomes further and further in the, in the distance. And then you get to the place of, again, like with Smyrna, or with, uh, with Sardis, rather, and they have a name because it's out on the building. I mean, look out there at the marquee. That's that church that everybody knows. And look at the name on the church. It must have something going on. Well, that's the name, but what, what's going on inside is dead. I say all of this as a run-up to it because I got a chance to be around Dwight again, uh, which is is such a treat, and being around the leadership, but then getting a chance to meet Bill. Uh, These are men who had gone before me. I've been here for 30 years around Cyprus, but I'm a pup when it comes to the early years of the movement. These men had been in the trenches for a decade or more before that, and I look at these men, and I think they have so much to offer, and It's an important thing that we don't let those things go by without taking notice of it, because that's where apathy comes in. That's where living on yesterday becomes a problem, because the people of today need to stay in the here and now, but remember where we've come from. And so, as he says to Laodicea here, verse 15 is what he says to all of them. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, and I could wish that you were either cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and you are neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you from my mouth. And you know, this is Jesus talking here. It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around that. But is there anything more disgusting than a tepid drink of water? I mean, think about it now. It's a little nippy outside, it's kind of cold. But think about it in the summertime, and it starts to get a little bit hotter, and it's, it becomes more humid. And for those of you guys that work out in the yard and do all that stuff, there's nothing better than coming in the house and have a big glass of cold, ice-cold water with ice in it and all the rest of it. Now, if you grab for one and it's just room temperature, what's your first reaction? It's usually to just spit it right back out. It's not, it's not what, it, what meets your desire. Well, it goes a step beyond that, because to Jesus, it's a point of nauseating. He says, he's going to vomit you from my mouth. I, I see you as a church, and when I consider it, it's nauseating to me. And so to think of the church in that kind of a condition, it's almost beyond belief. And yet, as Jesus would have it to be, he doesn't just say, and I'm going to leave it in that condition. He gives even this church that is completely asleep, he gives them remedy. And so we read on, and it says, now... "...because you say that I am rich, you become, uh, and you've become wealthy, and you have, no, uh, you have need of nothing, and you do not know, though, that you are wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked." Now, for sake of time, I won't go into it, but much of that, much of Jesus' assessment has to do with what life was like in Laodicea and what the things that they did in their trade and the, uh, the, their commercial uh, exploits are all wrapped up in that. And he says, now I counsel you to buy from me gold that is refined in fire, that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So he's not happy with their condition, but he's not content to leave them in it, so he offers to them remedy. Now, This is to churches, and so there are those people that like to, you know, they like to look at things like this and think, "I'm so glad that I'm not part of Laodicea, that I'm not part of this end times church." I would be very, very careful to make sure that we're looking at the churches as a whole, because after each church, he says, "Let the let the person who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural," and God has preserved this record for us that we're looking at it 2,000 years later. And I am here to tell you that I believe we are supposed to look at all of those churches because I think in even the best of the churches, you can find elements of all of those churches within the people. And the one that scares me as much as any of them is the one of apathy. And is this somehow unprecedented? Is Jesus talking about it that it's going to happen somewhere down the road? Well, it's not the first time that it's happened. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Zephaniah. And we're going to find out that this is not something that is unusual. This is, unfortunately, it's kind of human nature. Things go great for a while, and then they kind of slow down. And here's one of the things that I can point to in my years around Calvary Chapel, for which I'm so grateful. One of the better ways, again, to make sure that there's not apathy coming in, is in addition to always being in in a place of, of watching and waiting for the return of Jesus. In the meantime, stay in his word. And I'm grateful for, for these gentlemen that I know, these, these men of God, Dwight and Bill, and these men that have gone before, this is from the day that they started till this day. It is still their work in this world is to continue to rightly divide the word of truth. That means to handle accurately, as Paul had said to Timothy, well, we see that as our mandate as pastors. If we understand the calling that has been put upon our lives, then we will continue to do that. I'll tell you about a little inside story that was between Chuck Smith and his brother Paul. Paul told me about this. And he had said, uh, he and Chuck were talking one day, and, and Chuck had said, well, can anything last more than a generation? And they were speaking about Calvary Chapel. Because every time that, you know, somebody raises up, we're wondering, are they going to try to change things? And... and. Uh, Chuck had just said that kind of pondering it, and that was kind of left alone. And I said to him, if you get a chance, I'm talking to Paul, I said, if you get a chance to talk to Chuck, just let him know that for myself, as a a second, almost bordering on third generation guy, my pastor was very careful to pass along to me everything that he had learned from Chuck. And so if those people will pass it on, then there's no way that it degrades over time because you're giving something genuine to the next person. Not diluted, not changed. Give it to them in full measure. And so it should be as we look through the scripture. This is given to us in full measure. God has preserved his word and it hasn't changed. So we have a perfect record of what God would have us to know. But sometimes that's not enough. Because it takes the heart of the person to embrace what God has given and then move forward. But apathy is, if you haven't noticed this, apathy is the normal tendency of us, is it not? Praise the Lord, somebody agreed, because (laughs) there are those people that, yeah, they're kind of excitable, and they may break the mold a little bit, but apathy is kind of the thing that is just the way that we are. Well, look at what happened to the people here in Zephaniah's time. Now, if you're not familiar with Zephaniah, he was one of the prophets, and he was speaking to the the southern two tribes that were left, and uh, Babylon's on the horizon, that The northern tribes are gone. Assyria is no longer the power. They're no longer the big guy on the block. It's now Nebuchadnezzar, and it is Babylon. And they've been being told through the ministry of Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the other minor prophets, time is now, and they're about to come. Now, there could have been complete remedy in this had there been repentance on behalf of the people that were there and they had turned to God. God would have fought the battle, and Babylon would have been powerless yeah, they were the big guy on the block. Nobody could stand in front of them. But if Israel had turned, then the north or the southern two tribes, Judah in this case, had they turned to him, God would have defeated Babylon and it wouldn't have been a fight. And yet, because of apathy, here's what we read. Look at chapter 1. In verse 5, we read this. Zephaniah 1.5 says, Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops... Those who worship and they swear by the Lord, uh, swear oaths by the Lord. They were mixing the paganism of their day around them and trying to incorporate it into God's house. It's not the first time that it was done, unfortunately. It happened all too frequently through their history. And he says, but those also who swelled, uh, swear by Milcom or Molech is another word for him, but one of the false idols that was was there at the time. And he says, Those who have turned their back from following the Lord, and they have not sought the Lord, nor have they inquired of Him. You want to know what will bring disease into a church? You quit the back and forth communication that there is between you and God. You quit seeking Him and say, Lord, what would you have for me to do? God, do you have direction for me? Will you speak to me? So there is a back and forth in this, and we'll see the remedy that Jesus gives as well. But I want us to see... What brings you to a place of apathy? And it's not unprecedented because right here it happened to them. Now, God here through Zephaniah starts to speak about it's going to happen. This is one of the saddest things is when God is able to speak as though something is a completed issue, though it need not be. And so he's able to speak because he knows how things are going to be. And again, I'm thinking about Bill this morning, and he's talking uh, through Genesis there in chapter 1. Don't you love how Genesis 1 is written? It's not there to, to try to win an argument with an atheist. God is just saying, you weren't there, I was, this is how I did it, let's move on. And I love how scripture is written with that kind of certainty, so that we're able to come to it and say, if it's happened before, and this is the heart that caused it, I've got to steer clear of that. Well, here they are. Verse 12 tells us, And it shall come to pass, in chapter 1, verse 12, It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish men who are settled in their what? In their Laodicea. In their complacency. Now notice, it is Babylon who's coming, but who's the one who's judging and searching out the people thinking that they can hide? Because that judgment comes at God's hand. And it's because of their rebellion, and we'll get to the, more of what caused that rebellion in the first place. But these people are settled in their complacency, and look at what else he says. They who say, notice how he says, they who say in their heart that the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. I hear this in the church constantly, not this one. Not the ones that are holding true to the word of God. But I can't tell you how often I hear people excuse any variety of sin because they say, God is gracious and God is loving. This is the one that always cracks me up. God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. Jeremiah tells us that it's wicked and who can know it? Yeah, so man's heart from inception is in a place of rebellion against God. So please, if you ever hear anybody say, God's not really angry about things. He's not going to do good. He's not going to do evil. He knows our heart. He's loving and he's gracious. Tell that to the people of Judah. Tell it to the people of the northern tribes that were wiped out by Assyria because they could have made the same argument. We serve a holy God, brothers and sisters. He doesn't put up with complacency and it is something for us to make sure that, yes, he is is gracious and he's merciful. He's loving. i I weep when I consider the, the worship songs that we sing here as we consider what is, what is awaiting those who are looking for him. You know, there's a difference. We see sometimes the scripture talks about the fear of the Lord. And I said this back at church and, and uh, back in, in California. And I, I hope that it really resonated with people there because we read the fear of the Lord and we use it, it's used in the scripture quite often. And yet it's not something where you're cowering from him. I don't know about you, but any of you that are saved, I don't cower from the Lord. I'm not afraid of him, but I have great awe and, and wonderment and respect and awe for him. He's grand. He's, he's majestic. He's greater than words can describe. So it, it, it brings us to the place of bowing a knee to him because he's, he's all of those things. But I don't walk around afraid of my father. I don't walk around afraid of Jesus. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day where I can embrace him as he embraces me. That's the God that I know, so I'm not afraid of that. But I am to have an awe and a reverence, and they had lost such things. Turn to chapter 3, because he continues with this thought. And God, speaking through Zephaniah, has this to say. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city, and he of course addresses Jerusalem here because this is the seat of power of what's left and it's about to be judged because Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and take it out. Look at these four things that are said in verse 2. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction; She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. Those are progressive, by the way. One happens and it leads to the other. But look at those things as they're said in that succession. One of the things of disobedience to the Lord's voice means that you're going to never hear what he has to say because you won't take correction from him any longer. And if you won't take uh, correction, you'll probably use it as the excuse of saying, well, he's not worthy of my trust. Why would I want to take correction from somebody who I don't trust, nor do I fear? And it says they have not drawn near. That goes back to chapter one. They quit inquiring. They quit coming before the Lord and saying, I'm seeking you. I'm looking for your direction. Again, what could cause the problem at Laodicea? History. Mankind's heart. It's kind of the way that we do things. So staying focused is really the key to all of these things. But notice, this is such an important thing. Since we're talking about church in the future, we're looking at the covenant people of God. But I want you to see the common thing between them. Look at what is said here. Verse 3. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves, and they leave not a bone until morning. So these are the people that ruled over them in a political sense, in the civil things. They were devouring the people, they were exploiting them. Now, when it gets to the religious side of it, verse 4, it says, Her prophets, they're insolent. One of the words that that is uh, used to describe that, these are the ones that are frothing at the mouth. They're just anxious for everything, but there's no maturity in them. So they become not only insolent, but they're also treacherous. And to be a treacherous person is they're looking to do harm to somebody for themselves and for their own benefit. And who are they? Who is this? The prophets of God. The ones who are supposed to be speaking the oracles to the people. And yet they're treacherous and insolent. Now, Israel is Israel. God's going to do the things he's going to do with those people. He's also going to do something with the churches. And if I'm going to try to make some kind of a parallel here, I'm going to say that the prophets and then we're going to see the priests are the same thing as the leaders and and the pastors of today. And could those things be said of them? And if those things could be said of them, who are saying the things that they are saying and leading to this kind of apathy, then we have no business even stepping foot into their churches because we're becoming part of the problem. That apathy begins at the pulpit, and then it makes its way to the people because that's how it happened here, remember? They're being judged because of their rebellion against God, but that rebellion began at God's house. Because look at what he says of the priests. And the priests have polluted the sanctuary. They've defiled it. And these are the people that were to see to its well-being, right? Look at what else he says. They have done violence to the law. That means that they had taken the word of God that was supposed to govern the people and they had corrupted that along with the corporate worship place. So they had begun to say things that were not in the law and misrepresent God in the process. So again, now here you are, you're at Calvary Chapel Appleton I know that that doesn't happen here because I know your pastor I know that he and and myself were alike in this we want to make sure that there is no apathy in the church what we want to make sure is that there is a genuine excitement that today the Lord could come back and in the meantime if he doesn't he may come tomorrow but in the meantime he has things for us to do and that is an excitement to us it is a thing that should keep us propelled forward waiting for the day Well, in this case, they had had their leadership become insolent, misrepresenting God, and then ultimately misrepresenting his word, because the prophets would be representing God to the people. They're misrepresenting, and then the people that are supposed to be presenting man before God and instructing are the ones who they themselves are also corrupt, and what leads to it, or what does it lead to? Apathy. Remember, that's what we saw in chapter one. These people who had become complacent in their hearts, saying, ah, God's okay with it. He understands He's not going to do good. He's not going to do bad. He's not a judge. He's loving, right? Because we've seen him in the bookstores, right? All the pictures. He's just, he's hippie Jesus. You know, everything's cool. No problem. He's coming back and he's got lambs slung around his shoulders and he's, you know, that's him. So, of course, he couldn't come back as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, meeting out the judgment and all that stuff. Our God is holy. And our God calls us to be like him. There's no room for complacency in this. There is supposed to be a back and forth relationship that we have with him. Because he's the one who has initiated it. Right? Were we around when he died on a cross? No, but it was done with us in mind. Right? So everything has been initiated. He's the one who calls us to him. And so where is the place for apathy in that? Look at verse 5. The Lord is righteous in her midst and he will do no unrighteousness for every morning. He brings justice to light. He never fails. Don't you love being able to to speak with that kind of absolute? My God is incapable of failure. Me, on the other hand. Daily, as do all of us, but then the, the rest of this. The rest of verse 5. But the unrighteous, or the unjust rather, knows no shame. Interesting. I see the same people that are trying to say God's okay with the things that I'm doing and they have no shame for the things that they do. And interestingly enough, if going into the things that they're doing, if the Lord was standing right next to them, I wonder if they would even recognize that they're bringing him into the things that they're doing. Or if he just showed up out of nowhere. I mean, how many times were we just do one of these things. Don't look at that, Jesus. I'm very embarrassed about that, whatever it is that I'm doing. We would look to hide these things from him. Look, he's, he's everywhere. He sees everything that we do. He knows the motivations. He knows all the rest of those things. Now, this isn't supposed to depress us. What it is supposed to serve as, as a warning. Now, again, you're here. You're in church at a place that reverences God and reverences his word. But this is like I feel back home. I'm looking here and what do we got? How many, we have a, a couple of empty seats, right? I know that there are plenty of churches all around the valley that are probably filled to capacity entertaining people. But they're being systematically starved by the pulpits. And it's leading to apathy because they're not even seeing that the Lord is about to return. And I don't blame you. What I'm hoping is that you're engaging with those people and finding a way to speak the truth to them because this place should be filled to capacity. Should be back home. I got a church that's two churches close to us that probably have 15, maybe more thousand people between the churches. Massive congregations. People are flooding to that and they walk out ears tickled and entertained, but they have not heard the word of God. They do not realize the peril that they are in, nor do they realize that the earth is ripe for judgment. Now. There's got to be different elements to this. Because if all we're talking about is judgment, 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 then we become a one-trick pony, right? But we want to say that the Lord's going to judge as he is. But hey, he has called us to his side that we would escape that judgment. Because he loves. And you can know him. He's very personal. And I want to point out to, uh, to you a couple of those places. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we'll begin to wrap this up this morning. I want to make sure that one of the the important elements of this is to notice that whenever God recognizes or identifies for us something that is a problem, he will always give the remedy as well. And as far as the scripture is concerned, it may very well, you might read something that lays a stripe on your back, but the next verse begins to salve the wound that healing can ensue. God is not a person who's up there just pointing his finger and telling us how angry he is with us. That's not how he is. And he only says those things as a caution to us that we not continue in the direction that we're going. Because then he starts to give remedy. And I'm going to ask you to notice as we look at Matthew here, and then as we look at Revelation going back to close out at Laodicea, I want you to see how this is supposed to be a two-way street of seeking, asking, knocking. Look at verse 7. It says of Matthew 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? Then you, if you being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more so your father, who is in heaven, give you good, thing, or give good things to those who ask of him. So relationship is the issue here. We are supposed to be able to come to him, pursue after him, asking, seeking, knocking. God, what would you have for my life? I, I'm thinking again of, of Roger day before yesterday when he was saying that the Lord told him in a, you know, the middle of the night back in 1986, you're going to be a pastor. So he starts packing his bags the god was trying to tell him, i didn't say when here you are getting out the door hang on a second there's a lot of preparation that's going to go on between here and there and for some it's that way and others it's not but that asking seeking and knocking will a lot of times really help us from falling into all kinds of goofy stuff we know where god wants to take us right we've got that heaven's the destination are we correct there's a lot of stuff in between here and there correct Because we don't even know if it's today. It could be next year, two years, three years. Who knows? So that means there's a lot of this stuff in between here and there. We can get shipwrecked between here and there. Asking, seeking, knocking is a surefire way to make sure that, yeah, we're going to go through those things. But staying close to him means that we don't get sidetracked and off here while God's still walking this way. Only for us to have to try to get back to where he is. Asking, seeking, and knocking. So here we see Jesus put this in a place principle. Take a look back at chapter 3 of Revelation as we close out what he has to say to them. And remember again where he says in verse 19, this is the place that none of us ever wants to be. Again, they had become lukewarm. And it's not a hot or cold thing. Now again, think about those three temperatures, if you will. There's the room temperature, the lukewarm the hot and the cold and think about that what it's like with people the ones that are on fire for the lord you don't need to say anything to them you just encourage them hey stay hot brother sister stay right where you are and don't let the flame go out to the person that's really broken and I'm, i'll tell you this story do i have time for it I, okay i got time for it because you said so <laughs> There is a guy that was really, really good at evangelism down by us. I heard this through a a mutual friend. And this guy used to go out on the street and do street witnessing. Now, out by us, Harbor Boulevard is where the prostitutes are. It's where the, the, the bars are and all that stuff. And it's a great place to go out and do street witnessing. So they were out one particular night, and, uh, and a guy just comes out, lights up a cigarette, they see him, they're about a half a block away, and they walk up to him, he's just come out of a bar where there's topless dancing and all the rest of this stuff, and they start to witness to him. Now the guy that was doing the evangelism was not a scrawny man, he was like this, and he had a gift for evangelism. And he comes up to the man and he starts to talk about uh, the love of Jesus and how God loves him and all the rest of it, and the guy you know, kind of, you know, kind of drunk and and belligerent looks at him. He says, you're pathetic. Here you are when you probably have family at home and yet you're out here wasting your time talking to us. We don't want to hear about your Jesus stuff. So, of course, it's typical. If any of you have done street witnessing, you know that that's kind of the common fare. And so this guy, the Lord just tells him what to say. And he goes to this man and he said, you know, he goes, you're right. I have a child. Because I have, actually have a wife, I have a little girl, and I, have a, I think he had a son. And he said, and of all the things that I could be doing, I could be spending time with them. But they've been okay with me coming out here that I could tell people about the love of Jesus who might not be able to hear it any other way. He says to the guy that's been in there drinking and watching the show, he said, do you have any children? And the guy says, yeah, I have a young daughter. And he said, well, you know, it's funny that you would call me pathetic. Because here you are paying money to see someone else's daughter take off her clothes while you have yours at home. Now who's pathetic? And the man said, I, you know, he repented. He was a backslidden believer. Really backslidden believer to go in a place like that. And God sent him to that place. See, you can reach the person that is really, really cold oftentimes because you don't need to convince them. Just point out the obvious. Jesus loves you and died for your sin that you wouldn't have to live in this state of apathy and actual coldness towards Him. It's easier to reach them, but you know the ones that are really tough to reach? God's okay with it. He knows my life. Yeah, I fall into sin, but you know, He's gracious. He's not going to do no good. He's not going to do any evil. The ones that are in complacency, you can't even convince them that there's a problem. They're so lukewarm. What's the remedy? Getting back to that place of asking, seeking, knocking. But then I want you to also notice who says at the close of this book, this letter to the Laodiceans, and I believe that you can make this application to each one of the churches, same thing. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's this nice little if. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, dine with him, and he with me. Now to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my father's throne. There is a, a doctrine that is in the church and it's, it's becoming more contentious by the day. And uh, Chuck, before he passed, warned us against it. And that would be the, 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 uh, what we would call the reformed view that God picks and chooses who it is that lives and dies eternally. Interesting here that if that's the case, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And there's that if, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, this action, then I will. We know that it's his desire to do it, but he's not going to barge his way in or else he would say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any of the in, I'm going to just kick the door down and take them and leave the rest of you. But he says, here's my invitation to you, you who are stuck in your lukewarmness even to those that are cold and distant from him. I stand. You should have been asking, seeking, knocking, and looking at me. But you haven't done it, and you've fallen into a place of complacency and even coldness in some cases. But just because the intensity of his love, he will stand at the door. He will knock, and you will know that there's a voice as well, because he says, you got to hear my voice too. And he's calling out. So here we are, assembled in Calvary Chapel, Appleton. I, I was driving down the road right out here, uh, coming, coming in this morning, and I noticed that there are 73, the, the census last time it was taken, 73,000 and some change, people living in Appleton. And I'm guessing that the seating capacity is a little bit less than that in here. So, and there are a few extra seats. It is your task in this world. To make sure that you are going out and sharing the gospel, which was something that we were really good at back in the day in Calvary Chapel. And I think a lot of them still are. But you know what we were really, really good at? Making disciples. Converts are one thing. Disciples are an entirely different one. And I've been saying this around Calvary Chapels of late because I think that we, I want to make sure that we don't lose focus uh romans 1 16 i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power unto salvation to all who believe first to the jew and then to the greek right that's the proclaiming of the gospel but what happens after they get saved second timothy 3 16 all scripture is given by the inspiration of god and it is profitable it is useful for what's the first thing come on with me profitable for doctrine For correction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's where the disciples are made. That's what happens here. We proclaim the gospel. We invite them to church. Hey, I might not have all the answers. The word has the answers. Why don't you come along with a bunch of other people that are formerly fallen, but now made whole in Jesus. And let's learn about him together so that we don't get stuck in that place of apathy. Churches grow because sheep beget sheep. That was one of our, our rallying calls back in the day around Calvary Chapel. You're a sheep, you make sheep. Invite your friends. When you're evangelizing, look, we're not trying to proselytize and, and yank people from other churches. What we pray back home, and I hope that you start to do it here if you're not. There may be, and I'm, I don't know, I haven't taken a survey, but you may have some of those really big, big churches around here that there's a lot of flash, there's a lot of lights, there's a lot of really cool stuff. But what is the content of what's being taught over the pulpit? Is there genuine discipleship that's going on because you spend time in the word of God? Now, if you will join in this prayer, I know that this is probably the way that the leadership's praying here. I keep reminding ours back home. God, we don't want to go pilfering sheep from some other flock. It's not what we do. But we know that there are places that people are going thinking that they're finding you and they're seeking after you with a genuineness of heart and they don't know any better. And if there are those, Father, but they're being starved by their shepherds, then will you remove them from there and bring them someplace that will feed them your word that will tend to them as the flock of God. And I know that this is one of those places. We'd Love to see this place filled because filled sanctuaries filled with the word of God means full sheep that are able to go out and do the work of the kingdom, which we hear about all the time. The kingdom is not of this earth. It is of the one that is to come. So we look heavenly, waiting for his return. In the meantime, we preach the gospel with abandon, and then we make disciples by seeing that they are instructed in the word of God. That's why we assemble. That's the reason why we go to the trouble that we do, if you want to think of it as trouble, of coming to church. Because you guys could be doing a whole lot of other things on a Sunday morning, yeah? Yet you're here because you know that the word of God is taught. Why else would we assemble? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've not called us to a place of indifference, to complacency, to apathy. You've called us to a place of being on fire for the things of your kingdom. You've asked us, Lord, that we would take the time to seek you, the one who can be known, the one who can be found. Lord, we thank you that you have loved and, uh, and given yourself for us. We would ask, Lord, that you would search our hearts and that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, seeking to see these seats filled because this is where your word is proclaimed. You have a place of reverence in this place, and so we thank you, our holy God, who loves us and gave himself for us. May you be glorified continually in this place. Draw those that you would have to grow in their grace and knowledge of you. We give you thanks and praise for this whole week, this work of of your spirit in this place over these days. We thank you, we give you praise in Jesus' name.